This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello and welcome to the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, as always, Elwood Jones. And joining me, of course, is the Professor Stephen Palmer. Professor, indeed. Hello, Elwood. How are you tonight? I'm very good. And tonight is the is the first part of our two-part special. And we are going over these two parts, going to be each giving our, how should we say this, our top 25, our personal favourite 25. It's, whenever you say give any sort of list on the internet, if you say, like, essential, it instantly these are just angry emails being sent to you how dare you call certain things essential so these are our personal together the formal list of our personal top 50 asian cinema films and i think over the course of these two parts you're probably going to see there's some real sort of differences in between the films which interest myself and the films that interest Stephen. and uh, tonight we're obviously going to be going through my own 25 picks and then on the second part we're going to be going through Stevens. Um, the full list will be then put up on the blog and uh, you can obviously work your way through that and see how many you've seen yourself but um, I'm, I'm excited already to see what's going to be on this list because I think just in the sort of pre-production for this show we've we've both gone very unique sort of routes and very sort of individual routes and I have no idea what's on, on Stevens' list and uh I sort of given Stephen a heads up prior to the show just of what's on mine, so it's going to, it's quite exciting to obviously uh, see what this list is going to be producing. Yeah, I think one of the things that I hope comes out on the show normally is that we're both coming from very different places. So although quite often there's films that we both love, we're coming from very different cinematic places. Um, I know you call me the professor because I'm highbrow and stuff like that, <laughs> but but also I think I'm I'm very much more in the mainstream. Um, obviously. The, the romantic comedies and things like that. Whereas, whereas, um, well, we'll see what's on your list, but um, there was a lot less crossover than I thought there was going to be. Kicking off the list at uh, spot 25 is Rainy Dog, directed by Takashi Miike. The middle part of his Shinjuku Triad Society trilogy, which has also been renamed in the meantime, it, since the film first came out. I mean, this was first, I saw this when it was released through Tartan's me direct uh, Tartan's Asia Extreme label, and uh, since then it's now released as a Black Society trilogy. And Rainy Dog is for myself the strongest of the three films. This being a trilogy connected by themes and ideas rather than characters, uh, so a very sort of traditional trilogy, and especially within Asian cinema, because when we look at trilogies um, in Asian cinema, they rarely often or not will carry across characters, they're more often just be about themes and ideas, as we saw with like Park Chan Wook's Vengeance trilogy. Rainy Dog itself, it's he's a Japanese assassin who's been stranded in Taiwan and has been forced into taking a job from the local crime boss to make ends meet and thrown into this mix, um, a woman from his past turns up with uh, her son who claims to uh, belong to him. And this is, as I said, this is in the middle of uh, Miki's outlaw period, and at the same time, while it's obviously got the bloodshed, it's got the heavy rain downfall, and we've got a man opening, I think in the opening 15 minutes, taking a wee off a roof, while his genitals are blurred out in a haze of scratchy lines. 
at the same time, this is a film where you've got such magical moments of the this little tri- little group uh, discovering a scooter buried on the beach, which well, not only are they able to dig out, but also seems to be full of fuel, and they're able to, in the next scene, seem riding down the road. So there's a lot to like about Rainy Dog, especially from here, the outlaw period for Mikey, and I think this is a real sort of standout for myself and in that sort of uh, key period for him. But, Ian, what about yourself? Are you fan of Rainy Dog, or...? As this won't be the first time I'm going to say this tonight, okay. <laughs> I've never seen it. Okay. I, have, I haven't seen any of these three films. My Takashi Mike experience begins yeah, probably a bit, a little bit later. Yeah. Um, which is surprising because this is probably one of the films of his you thought I'd really like. <laughs> um, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm coming at this. Um, it's it's a recommendation for me rather than something I can comment on. At 24, Bill, we're going to uh, obviously pick up Park Chan-wook, and that's Joint Security Era from 2000. This is a film which I think a lot of people tend to miss out on. It's really surprising when you think of how like big Park Chan-wook's county is. I mean, he's not only doing films over in his native Korea, but he's also doing uh, films like Hollywood productions with things like Stoker. And yet, for some reason, we always seem to forget about Joint Security Era, and it's a real shame. A really interesting uh, film where it focuses on the Joint Security Era, which separates North and South Korea, and it opens with kind of a little mystery where um, two North Korean soldiers have been killed, supposedly by one of the South Korean soldiers. Um, and it sort of flashes back, and we discover that through the the uh, DMZ that these soldiers have been forming a friendship and they've been meeting in secret even though their forces are heavily opposed to each other and when they meet each other when they're with their own forces that they have to act like strangers to each other and it's a really interesting look at uh, people's beliefs and it's just this idea that this country which has obviously been split into North and South with obviously the North being uh, communist itself being capitalist. Um, these soldiers finding common ground between the two and and just forming this very unique friendship and all the time trying to having to hide uh, the fact that their friends are obviously conducting these meetings in secret and to obviously beat so, builds that sort of explosive climax. And I think Joint Security is definitely a, a real highlight on Pachan Wu's strategy. It's more subtle than his vengeance strategy and uh, certainly not as obsessed as like the handmaiden but there's a lot to uh, enjoy there, and certainly has a lot of his sort of trademark style to it. Yeah, um, I'm interested that you've picked this one because it's Park Chan Wook's most mainstream film. The, 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 obviously, we could talk about the Vengeance trilogy, and we probably will mm. over the next two episodes, and the, and the various outliers like Cyborg. Um, but this is. Yeah, I'm really surprised. I really like it. it, but it's a very, for me, it's a very by-the-numbers sort of military murder mystery that doesn't feel particularly Korean, except for the fact about the subject matter. It's got an amazing cast, though, um, with uh, the always brilliant Song Kang-ho and the uh, terribly handsome Lee Byung-hun and um, the incredibly beautiful um, Lee Young-a. So... For for star watching, it's, it's it's hard to beat. I mean, it's, I think it's a very good film. Um, I just wouldn't have it 
as one of Park's top movies. Okay. But there's nothing wrong with it. it. It's hugely entertaining, and I and I absolutely hear what you're saying in the way that it's often forgotten about because there's nothing wrong with it at all, and it, and it certainly deserves to be talked about and watched. I think this won't be the first time that I'm going to pick something unusual. And so when I was compiling this list, I tried to avoid like. You know those films which everyone says, oh, this is like an essential film and just went with like what I like. <laughs> Basically, I was more about uh, picking the films I like rather than their critical acclaim or their cult following. So there's going to be some some rather unique choices, I think, in this. And I think that's summed up by, um, especially by number 23, uh, which is 2009's Fish Story by uh, Yoshihiro Nakamura. This is a film which, when I first started watching it, I wasn't sure I was going to dig it. I, I stuck with it, and I'm really glad that I did. Um, the film itself, it follows this uh, song called Fish Story, which is written by this Japanese punk band. And the film follows a course of 37 years, and it follows the follows this uh, song and how it influences different people over the course of that period. As we go from this uh, punk band writing it, to right at the end where it plays a very key part in saving the Earth from total destruction uh, from a giant comet that is heading towards us, which, in a fun little dig to Armageddon, um, it's noted that the American team sent up to disable the comet have failed miserably. So it's down to uh, down to Japan to save, uh, save the world from this giant comet. And it's fun just seeing the genre blending of styles how this song constantly plays a part in these different characters' lives and just how it uh, weaves in and out over the course of this this 37-year period. And I think when you watch this film, you wouldn't think that it would be able to encompass like the genres and styles that it does. But yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a, an unusual film, but uh, one that once it all comes together and you see how it all ties together, it's just uh, a really fun, fun little uh, film. I've never seen this, but you have spoken about this film before, haven't you? I don't know whether on the podcast or maybe in a in a chat outside. It sounds absolutely fascinating, and I can't believe I haven't um I haven't come across it before. Yeah, this was a uh, one of those late night film four showings. So again, if you uh, live in the UK, then always check that one pm slot for film four because they're normally showing something good um, or something something probably cult um in that slot and it's great for especially seeing these like one off showings of like uh of Asian cinema and especially uh as it seems to be where they've decided to put them unless it's like a Ghibli movie. So but no uh Fish Stories as I say it's I believe uh Fur Window Films put it out and I don't think it's sort of been picked up by any of the other levels since. Um I think you can still get it through Third Window Films so but um yeah definitely Put it down if you haven't, does it? Yeah, I absolutely will. I mean, it's a director I don't know much about either, though. He did a rather good film recently called uh, The Inerasable, which is a sort of a horror mystery film, which is um, well worth checking out, but not as um, not as uh, unusual as this one sounds. Cool. Um, well, next up, uh, we have got a film which I think a lot of people sort of dismissed uh, just because they were so excited about Tokyo Tribe, and that's uh, Why Don't You Play in Hell. Um, both films came out at around the same sort of time, um, and 
I don't, there's something about Why Don't You Play in Hell which just really sort of stood out for me. And, I mean, Sion Sono as a director is, I think he's really sort of in the last couple of years really come into vogue. He's sort of picked up that mantle for, like, people who enjoyed, like, the Mike, Takashi Miike outlaw years have now sort of gravitated to checking out the films to Sion Sono. And he's sort of really running with it. He's just... But the man who obviously, like, was introduced to many people with, like, Suicide Club, he's just gone on to become increasingly like this really interesting director and one who's not afraid to take risks and certainly as we've seen with like films like Love Exposure and Coldfish and even more recently I like Antiporno which I really enjoyed and Stephen I think you didn't really like that much I had a problem with pretty much so in, in this period um which started with Why Don't You Play in Hell and Tokyo Tribe he put out something like six or seven films in a 12 month period of which Anti-Porno and Tag were two. All, all of which, I like Tokyo Tribe, but all the others I have severe problems with. Um, none of them were as bad as the stupid virgin psychics nonsense they did. But um, um, yeah, I, I thought Why Don't You Play in Hell was fine. Um, isn't it... Um, I'm just trying to remember. Isn't it based on like an old script he had written way back before he was famous and sort of had the chance to dust it off and <laughs> and and do it as 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 a, as a more established artist? I believe so. Um, I mean, the the script, as you say, is completely bonkers. I mean, we've got this group of filmmakers who basically go around filming random things they see in their sort of town. They end up crossing paths with this Yakuza gang and decide that they're going to film the showdown between these two rival Yakuza gangs. And it's so visually interesting and it goes off in many random directions. And I think the fact it is so random and throws in like references like Kill Bill, we've got a scene where one of the characters uses World of Samurai Sword and like slashing people up and they're like spurting rainbows and Oh, it's just so many fun elements in this film that I just really, really got a kick out of it. And it's, I think whenever we look at, like, humour, especially with an Asian cinema, this question whether it's going to translate or not, because some things do get lost in translation, uh, especially more cultural sort of based things. And there's just something about Why Don't You Play in Hell that just really translated with, uh, resonated with me. I just thought it was just a fun flake throughout, so. Yeah, I get It's a bit like... Um... Like when we talk about joint security area, I think it's I think it's a really good entertaining film. Um, not one of my favourite Sonos, but I absolutely understand why you in particular like it because I think it's ticking a lot of your boxes. Whereas for me, I felt it was um, I just felt it was a bit noisy, um, which some Sono films can be. And this comes from the guy that likes Tokyo Tribe, which is his noisiest one of all. So yeah, I mean with Tokyo Tribe, it's the fact is that. You're watching people rap in Japanese. And while I loved all the craziness and all the, the action sequences, it's just like the rapping is like I'm watching people rap in Japanese and re and following subtitles to understand it. It was like there's just something not resonating here, even though I did really like the visual sort of style to it. So Yeah, no. Um I mean of this of sort of the six of this period, I mean, I think if if anything defines the difference between you and I is that your favourite is um is this. I don't, I don't know. Uh, have you got any other Sonos as we go up? don't think so. Is this your only Sono? I believe this is the only Sono that I've Interesting. made the best. Yeah. So my favourite, which was... Um, I can't remember if it made my list or not. I don't think it did. I think it was... It just, it's um, Whispering Star. 
Okay. Which is like this stark, sort of sepia-toned, lo-fi science fiction film, which is really a meditation on... Um, on life and death and humanity and i think i think the fact that i uh, that's my favorite of this this period of sono's work and this is yours i think if you want to uh, describe the difference between the two of us that's it <laughs> that brings us to 21 and this is a real throwback to sort of my, my one of my sort of entry point and really my college years and uh, that's 1993's ninja scroll a real sort of tempo title for anime and here we've got obviously the Masterless samurai Jubai, who is forced to team up with a rogue ninja to foil a plot to overthrow the government. Um, this film sort of really sort of stands out to myself mainly because it taps into that pop samurai vibe that I love so much, and the fact that we basically got this samurai anime, um, and at the same time basically has this hero Jubai who's like you know the the master swordsman, so he does all kinds of stupid and over-the-top uh, moments throughout this, and he's basically forced to fight all these fantastical villains along the route to uh, following this this plot tour for the government. And it's, you know, it's it's violent, and it contains so many sort of trademark things of, like, 90s anime that I think now have been sort of pushed more to the back as we've sort of focused on more sort of, like, plot-driven and cutesy things. And back in, like, 93, when the film was released, I mean, a lot of the anime that was coming across was really sort of, like, violent and oversexed, and I think it's why the, you know, it's led to a lot of pages sort of rustling from, like, you know, the likes of the Daily Mail who called for those to ban this sick filth, and it's also a time when we were calling over here, and we were calling anime manga just because it was produced by manga entertainment, and I think over in America they were calling it Japanimation, so it's interesting to obviously see that these sort of titles that laid the foundation for obviously all the animation that's followed. I think there's a, there's still the, as old school anime fans who still remember them, and I think there's just this younger generation who just forget that these movies exist. But Ninja Scroll is just phenomenally animated and just so much fun. Even if you're not like a big anime fan, you can just pick this up and enjoy it because it's just so action packed and really quick paced. So. It won't surprise you that I haven't seen this. <laughs> no. <laughs> because um, uh, uh, obviously we say pretty much every other episode, I'm um, I'm not really an anime guy, and I'm certainly not this kind of anime guy, yeah. if that makes sense. Um, obviously, is it, it always seems to turn out I've watched far more animated movies than I like to admit. But um, um, actually, it actually sounds really interesting. And... If it's what I think it is, it's quite an influential piece on some Western cinema as well, isn't it? Um, Definitely. I mean, you can see you can see how it's influenced uh, different elements. I think certainly, again, we're going to go constantly back to Kill Bill uh, whenever you mention like Pop Samurai, because there were so much uh, Pop Samurai references in Kill Bill. I think a number of these titles on my list will have been directly influenced in that film. But I think certainly when you when we look at like modern of media i mean if you look at like samurai showdown 2 um pretty much most of the characters from this film were in there as playable characters you can like look at films like things like onomushi and even like sudoku's shadows die twice and just like see that where the roots of like ninja scroll went and it did inspire the knockoff ninja resurrection which frustratingly was never finished making it much like ralph bakshi's lord of the rings it it has this amazing setup, and it was just never finished, which is kind of unsurprising for a lot of nineties anime. The fact that they were start projects and they would just never get finished. But yeah, I think Ninja Scroll for some reason it's just 
even as I've got older and, I don't know, my tastes have kind of a little matured, shall I say. Um, this is something about Ninja Scroll that's just constantly made me come back to it time and time again. So keeping on the martial arts theme, um, another really sort of influential film, and that's uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon by Ang Lee. This film released back in 2000, it was described as, by many people as Sense and Sensibility with Kung Fu. An absolutely standout cast uh, with both Chang Yun Fat and Michelle Yeoh. And even for like those martial, if you're a big martial arts fan, you obviously recognize the Golden Swallow herself, Chang Pei Pei. Crouching Tiger and Dragon was one of those movies. I mean, it was released, obviously subtitled, and I think a lot of people going into it had no idea what Wuxia films were. They certainly weren't expecting to have to sit through a big subtitle movie, and I think I saw more walkouts of this movie than I did it with many films of the uh, the time. But it really sort of ushered in a revival of interest in Hong Kong cinema and sort of paved the way for like Tarantino to push through his um, his presentation version of I'm Monkey, which is also really, really cool. It's a Donnie Yen movie. Uh, but yeah, Crouching Tiger and Dragon, it's, as I said, it's got that art house style to it and at the same time has a lot of classic wuxia elements to it. And I didn't think that Ang Lee would be the director who would bring this, the man who was obviously giving us films like, you know, The Ice Storm and um, A Wedding Banquet and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. Um, these sort of like art, art, artsy sort of picks. We, I think he was sort of the last person we'd expect to produce a really kick-ass martial arts movie. And and uh, yeah, this again, Crouching Tiger and Dragon. I think it's a real, still a real sort of standout in martial arts cinema and a film that uh, is well deserving of of its critical sort of reputation. So um, we've spoken about this with Kim, haven't we? Whereas Kim and I, I think, have a similar view that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is like a really good cover version of Wuxia movies. Um, and so I, and I think it's, everything you said is absolutely true. It's absolutely a touchstone movie because it, it did break over into the West. It did not win the Oscar for um, best film. I can't remember. It certainly, it certainly was represented. Um, and I went to the cinema to watch it when it came out and the cinema was packed. I don't remember anyone walking out. And it's got some of the great names of both Hong Kong and Chinese cinema in it. It's beautiful to look at. I just didn't see an awful lot of originality in it myself. Um, and those bits in the desert just seem to go on and on and on and on. <laughs> um, I certainly didn't need a, I didn't need a sequel, which... Um, I think Netflix thought we needed about 20 years too late. I mean, I, th I think it's absolutely fine. Um, but what I would use it as is a gateway into other Wuxia films, um, including Iron Monkey, which is, I agree, absolutely fantastic. Um, so th this would be my route to go and look at the real deal rather than this polished cover version. But, you know, potato, potato. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously funny you mentioned like the desert sequence because I know that the distributors wanted to cut it out and Tarantino fought them to keep it in, um, arguing it was one of the best e sort of sequences of the film. So um, I can see why people wouldn't want to. Cause it, is, it didn't feel like it was kind of like randomly slotted in there, this random flashback to Zhang Zee's character falling in love with this handsome, <laughs> this handsome bandit uh, and the desert. And there's just so many sort of like, 
set pieces in this, such as like, you know, the battling on top of the bamboo, or when we look at like the training room sequence where, where we've got Michelle Yeoh and Zhang Zi battling out with different weapons. I think that they're just sort of like real sort of standout sequences. And the fact it's got this sort of like very traditional sort of soundtrack to it, it's not like they put like a modern soundtrack or anything on it. It's just like I pay a lot of right, uh, right notes for myself. So, and you know, Michelle Yeoh with, Sharp weapons and murderous intent is just my thing. Oh, I can't, can't disagree. <laughs> On a slightly less classy note, uh, number 19, we have Takashi Miike's Dead or Alive, uh, the first part of his Dead or Alive trilogy. Right, a real sort of tempo for the outlaw period of Miike's films. This opens with one of the most eye-opening 15 minutes of cinema you will ever see, as we see people snort like marlong uh, lengths of coke, uh, people having throat slits, Stomachs exploding, assassinations, people falling off roofs, drug deals. It's just, oh, you can print what most of them's managing, like a whole runtime. He crams into 15 minutes and reality uh, porn movies. <laughs> I know. And I mean, this is when I was like when describing this, I basically say this is like Mickey remaking Heat. Uh, but just, you know, a lot shorter and a whole lot better. As, uh, here he's got like Rike uh, Takayuchi and Sho Ekawa. Again, two real standout performers. And if you, especially if you like uh, sort of like triad movies, you really would know these guys like straight off. And the fact that Mikei thought that their star status was like so high that in the final showdown, he couldn't decide who would actually win, so he just decides to eliminate all life on Earth. And that's how he ends this movie. And somehow he manages to get two sequels out of this, uh, with these two actors battling each other across time and space. And yeah, I think the first Dead or Alive, it's certainly got that crime element and it's got that wonderful opening. It's got that even more bizarre finale. Um, but there's something about the, the story about, you know, this, uh, this triad boss and the cop who's like determined to bring him down. The story of the the rivalry between these two is just really engrossing. And yes, there are obviously elements from Mikei's that little period which do make it a little harder to recommend to sort of people who aren't familiar with his work, such as um, one of one of the characters gets drowned in a paddling pool of feces. And as I said, there's some really sort of random sort of moments uh, throughout this film which sort of like think I think if you're like a little more squeamish it may make it a bit more hard to say but overall it is just a really fantastic and truly original uh, crime movie No, I, I actually only saw it fairly recently um, someone did a box set of the, of the three dead or alive movies and uh, I was trying to fill in those, those Takashi Mikey Gaps in my knowledge, and I was blown away by this. I think um, <laughs> so. Everything I've said, I didn't like about why don't you play in hell. I absolutely <laughs> adore about this. Yeah, because contextually where it is in his career, and just have it. I mean, I, he, he, he's done a whole bunch of movies that are like weird crime movies, right? That's right. Um, um... And, and and but this is the epitome of it. This is this is the apex of of. <laughs> Weird shit Japanese crime movies, and like you say, that first fifteen minutes is just the most amazing. Uh, it, it, if, if you want to say this is what Takashi Mikey is about, show somebody those fifteen minutes, and um, and that shows you he's he's a proper filmmaker, not a you know 
a lot of his work was done early days or straight to video. And he's pumped out hundreds, literally over a hundred movies, hasn't he, in his yeah. career. Um, and in any other hands, that would be a hack. But those 15 minutes shows to me that the guy's a, a master of, of, of filmmaking. And even though it is shocking and lots of shocking things happen, I didn't feel grossed out by any of it. I was just charmed. I was just charmed by its imagination. Yeah, it's. I love the fact that when Mickey talks about his films from the outlaw period, especially the ones that he's like directed video work, and in Japan there never seems to be the same sort of shame that we used to have for director video productions. And he describes it as making films of boys out in the countryside. So. It's, yeah, it's 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 a different thing. I mean, I, I the the consumption of cinema in Asia is different and it's just another way and and hilariously i guess that's where we're going here in the west with straight to netflix and things like that where where things which um may never hit a cinema (laughs) and they you know proper a-list directors may end up just distributing straight to other media and straight to streaming yeah, and it's funny as well when we look at Mikey as a director and we think of when he's uh, producing these movies and things like Ishii the Killer and now he's like producing such high quality work as like Person Assassins. You would not think it's the same director. Uh, the fact that I mean he's now working at a level which is as where it feels like he's like one of the top respected directors not only in Japan but to the West as well. He's like completely shifted once he entered that outlaw period. Now gone into more of a sort of mainstream period, and yes, are there's detractors who wish that he was still making these sorts of movies, but I'm just still excited every time he like, you know that you get a, a new Mika movie. I mean, the fact he's passed over a hundred films at this point, it really sort of says something about this man's workload, and the fact that he's the only one of those few directors who can pump out like seven movies a year. Uh, I mean, he's, he's I mean, he's, he's he's slowed down a fair bit, but he's still capable. You know, he he does do those respectable anime and manga remakes and he does do I mean he even does like romance films and things like that I mean it's, he is not we, we, we often think of him over here as sort of the, the, the master of the cult and the macabre the guy's only ever made two horror movies um, and out of a hundred films that's remarkable I mean he's made a lot of these crazy Yakuza films I suspect that's about a third of his output but you know what what we think of him is is a fraction of what he is. It's, he's a fascinating guy. Uh, on a more classy note, is um, my next pick, and uh, now obviously uh, moving on to uh, pick eighteen, and that's nineteen sixty six Tokyo Drifter by Seijin Suzuki. Um, again, another key influence on Kill Bill. Uh, if you ever wondered where the switch from color to black and white came from, that would be Tokyo Drifter as this film randomly switches from colour to black and white and then back to colour again, mainly because when they were filming the production, they just were using any sort of film stock they could get their hands on, and it creates this really interesting art house effect. Um, The film itself, it uh, follows Yakuza Bofkura, who's dissolved his own criminal empire, and a rival kingpin offers the position to Katsura's top operative, Tetsuo Phoenix Tetsu Honda. And when the fiercely loyal Tetsu declines, Otsuko taps the unstoppable Tetsu the Viper, who's a ruthless gun for hire to assassinate him. And 
As the Viper Charles' target through the countryside, the agile Phoenix Tetsu grows concerned for one of his former associates has betrayed him. This is really why entry point into the sort of films of Suzuki, and he's one of those directors I'm still working my way through. I've only seen a few films of his, things like Branded to Kill and uh, The Fighting Drink, uh, Fighting Delinquent. So he's uh, still a director I'm discovering, but Tokyo Drift is really a fun little gangland thriller. It's, uh, as I said, from the surface, it may look a little artsy, but just the actual direction and the set design and just the, the style is so cool. This movie is just well worth discovering. And I think if you're looking for an entry point into his work, cause he has got a very extensive back catalogue. Um, I think that Tokyo Drifter, it, much like Brandon's Kill, is just a really nice entry point for this one, so, for this director. Yeah, the, this isn't my favourite Seijun Suzuki film. Um, you've mentioned the one that I love the most, <laughs> which is a, a Branded to Kill, which I, I suspect we'll be talking about in the next, um, someone in the next 25 episodes. Um, <clears throat> one of us will bring it up, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, it, um, there is a whole, there's a whole genre of cool Yakuza movies. Um, and he brings to them, I don't know, a, a, a really weird visual style, um, humor, but cool, um, you sort of know you're watching one of his films. So, yeah, I, I, I'd recommend this one. Staying with the Japanese masters, my uh, next pick um, is Keiji Mushu, The Shadow Warrior from Akira Kurosawa. Uh, Kurosawa, unquestionably one of the masters of Japanese cinema. And for, I mean, whenever we produce these sort of lists, I think a lot of people we either go like Front of Blood or Seven Samurai, and they miss off completely Keiji Mushu, which is really kind of surprising. I mean, this is a film that was excessively produced by both George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola, no doubt because of the amount that both of those men owe their visual style to the work of uh, Kurosawa. I think certainly with Lucas, he owes like a whole franchise to uh, Kurosawa, obviously with Hidden Fortress now being so well known as the inspiration for Star Wars. Um, the film itself, it's uh, is one of those feudal epics, and we've got an aging warlord who dies, and he's replaced with an imposter, and it's basically about this ruse to basically avoid the rival sort of warlords from attacking. Uh, they keep this ruse that, that he's still alive, and the, the film itself is uh, very sort of like, it's very sort of character-driven, so it's not the most action-packed of movies, but it does have one of the most astounding final shots of any of the Kurosawa movies. Uh, as it just takes a wide lens to a battlefield sequence. And I think uh, Keiji Musha is certainly just... It's one of my favourites of the uh, Kurosawa back catalogue. I mean, it's a back catalogue which has got so many sort of undisputed classics in it, but I think I'd rather give the nod to Keiji Musha and have more people discover it than you know, just go with, like, one of the old favourites. Yeah, that's a really, another really interesting choice by you. I mean, obviously, there was going to be a Kurosawa on this list, on your list, or on my list, or one of our lists, for sure. Um, and, and obviously, the sort of thing that inspired us to do this was that other BBC list, wasn't it? Which was which is full of Kurosawa movies. Yeah, um, yeah this, is, this is a really good one. Um, and like you say, um, you could have pointed people at Rashomon, you could have pointed people at Ran, you could have pointed people at all sorts of things. Um, 
the joy of Kurosawa is most of his films are just really, really good. So um, <laughs> even the ones which aren't um, uh, Jidogeki uh, period dramas. Um, uh, yeah, you, you, I think you could have thrown up, you could have thrown a, a dart at a Kurosawa dartboard and come up with a perfectly valid choice. Awesome. Well, that's reassuring. <laughs> Probably on the again we're still on the samurai track, but it's a pop samurai track, and that's uh, Baby Card of Peril um, at the River Sticks, or Baby Card at the River Sticks, should I say? This is the second film in the Lone Wolf and Cub series. Um, the film itself, following the Shogun, the uh, Shogun's personal assassin, as he him and his infant son Diego travel through the land that they call hell. Um, this is, I think, the film which I think when a lot of people talk about their favourite of the, the saga, this is a real sort of the one which a lot of people would gravitate towards. Um, it was also a key influence for the film Big Trouble in Little China as the Lords of Death um, are basically the visual inspiration for the three storms. If you have for the longest time, I mean, Shogun Assassin was the only sort of cut we had of this, which basically took the first film and the majority of this film and edited it together and I mean, I still argue that Shogun Assassin is not without its charms. I mean, you get all the great best bits of uh, both films in, in one film. But I think uh, if you're watching them for what they are, then certainly Baby Cut the River Sticks is just an absolute standout. Uh, just seeing uh, the, our hero, uh, Gomi Eto, as I said, he's this was originally an executioner for hire for the Shogun, and now he's basically, after his wife was assassinated... Um, has, has gone on this sort of rampage of bloody revenge and in this film it's got highlights such as a group of female ninjas who when they're recruited for the job of assassinating him uh, challenge one of the sort of henchmen of their, their new employer to basically walk down an alleyway and he's slowly hacked to pieces so just his head rolls um, to the end of the pathway and just the lords of death themselves with the big uh, the big sort of struck rice paddy sort of hats on and their sort of like weapons which include like a club and wolverine claws and just really uh really cool to see and yeah it's it's fun bloody action it's a pop samurai movie so it's not the most highbrow films but i think it's a real sort of standout and uh and one worth checking out especially with like fun samurai movies yeah i couldn't agree more um i kind of grew up with um uh the lone wolf and cub manga which was, I guess, reprinted by Dark Horse when I was sort of 15, 16, 17. And, of course, which is the same material that, that these these films are based on. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't pick one above any of the others, like picking your favourite child, isn't it? They're all, they're all a huge amount of fun. Um, you know, it's fascinating what drama and action you can eke out of a a disgraced samurai and a baby in a, in a cart <laughs> and make something like six films about them. Um, and, and each one of them is unique, has got something different about it. So, um, as you say, this is, this is probably the standout one. This is the one most people would know, but don't forget there's plenty of other movies in this series, which are all equally as fun and enjoyable. Yeah, definitely. Especially when it comes to baby cult, which has got so many hidden, weapons and gadgets on it would make Q blush. It's like if uh, James Bond ever needed a stroller, this would be his stroller of choice for sure. 
On to the next pick. We are now on to number 15, and that's Where the Dragon from 1972. Absolute standout film from Bruce Lee. Now, when I was coming to pick my third Bruce Lee movies, I was going to obviously go with Where We've Entered the Dragon. You know, that standout classic. And I thought, well, we can't really pick Enter the Dragon because it's a bit of a, a Western movie. And certainly when you look at his films that he made through Golden Harvest, I think Where the Dragon's the absolute standout here. And see, he's uh, sent to Rome to help his cousins in their restaurant business. And they're being pressured by the local crime syndicate. And the sort of standout to this movie is the fact that we get to see the double nunchucks, the sequence which was hacked to bits by the BBFC in the UK, only being restored in the sort of early 2000s as the sort of head of the BBFC at the time was really sort of frowned on Eastern weaponry. So uh, the mere side of nunchucks, especially two being wielded by the master, uh, Bruce Lee, was a real sort of like no-no. Um, the film is also really noteworthy for featuring Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris having a fight to the death in a Roman Coliseum. Um, there's a number of videos in there where people have like dissecting it. And I've seen like sort of like martial arts commentators like, really sort of break down the scene. So there's a really good scene to just sort of dissect and stuff. Um, Chuck Norris, sadly, he obviously loses. So, but, you know, this is Chuck Norris without the beard. So, you know, without his beard of power, it was always inevitable. He was never going to be Bruce Lee. The story behind, obviously, that final showdown being really fantastic as Bruce Lee basically phoned up Chuck Norris and said, how do you feel about coming to Rome and having a fight to, <laughs> fight to the death with me in a Roman Coliseum? And he was like, I'm on my way. Where the Dragon, uh, real sort of standout for myself. I think it's the Golden Harvest sort of films. I think Where the Dragon's always going to be my favourite at that period. And there was always going to be a Bruce Lee film on this list, right? I think it's inevitable. Um, we have. Uh, I, th- I think you know if, if you're going to have if you're going to have Kurosawa as the director of Asia, you're going to have to have Bruce Lee as the mega star. You know his his CV may be small, but his importance as a Chinese icon is is it's not negotiable <laughs> so um yeah wouldn't have been the one i picked but i think the you know you've, you've got a small pool there to pick from um and you're absolutely right sort of the, the the bruce versus chuck norris it's it's iconic in and of its own right isn't it oh there's just so many secret so many parts of that sequence it's not just like a straight, straight up fight of them just like throwing blows at each other it's just so many like small details the way that when he defeats him at the end, he covers over his opponent. It's that mark of respect. And this was always the thing with Bruce Lee's films. There was all these like different philosophical elements that Lee put into the fights. They weren't just like, oh, I'm just this invincible tough guy who's just going to batter 500 guys. There's always these like these philosophical elements. And as I said, just the way that these two battle, these two martial arts masters, is just absolutely astounding to see. So definitely a one worth checking out if just for that scene alone so the next pick on the list at number 14 is the film which started it all for us here on the asian cinema film club and that's 1995's ghost in the shell by mamori ushi again when we talk about the temples of anime then ghost in the shell is unquestionably up there i would say it's my second favorite anime of all time the film itself was remade recently with uh i would say a passable hollywood remake i really i liked it i think the critics didn't but the film itself, it uh, follows this group of cybernetic cops uh, from Section 9 as they're trying to track down a hacker known as the Puppet Master. And it brings a lot of interesting sort of philosophical questions about you know what a soul is and uh, what it is to be human. And at the same time, throws in 
a lot of fun lots of like cyberpunk elements into the mix and it's one of those entry points for myself when it came to anime and it's a film that I still return to myself which find myself returning to like time and time again. I think it's a really great story. Fantastically animated and a real sort of standout for Momoru Ishii's sort of resume as I mean he obviously gave us things like Planable, which is also really cool as well. But uh Ghost in the Show is just still an absolute standout and we started the show with it and I think I'm still, I'm still happy that that was the first first film we chose to review on this because I think it's still a really important work. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the US remake as well. <laughs> I think we I think we um probably were contemporaneous with that release. I thought it addressed head on some of the issues that other people had with it, and I thought it was very good. My my opinion hasn't changed 180 degrees from when we first talked about it. I think it's a movie which is more interesting in the subjects and discussion points that it raises, what, you know, sort of about souls and what it is to be human, yeah. than maybe the quality of the animation, maybe the quality of the story. But, you know, it, it, it's a tentpole of anime. It's one of the gateway three, yeah? Um, it's or gateway four. Um, you had to have one of these on the list. And absolutely. I, I, I approve. <laughs> 13 now, and the next title I'm going to talk about is Audition from 1999, Takashi Miike, and I think we said on episode 25, our most recent episode, that when we look at the films which re-sparked the interest in Asian cinema, the so-called Asian invasion, it was this film, Battle Royale, and Ring, that really sort of revived the interest in Asian cinema and Audition is really an interesting sort of movie, especially for Takashi Miike because it was quite unlike anything else he was doing at the time as it's a very sort of, sort of movie and it's one movie which constantly makes the the top like scary moments of all time to its finale but I think if you go into it expecting this straight out gore fest you're going to be seriously disappointed as this is a very subtle, a very sort of slow burning film as we have this um, ad executive who is basically holds a fake audition to try and find a a new partner, and uh, in doing so, he encounters this sort of like really it's really entrancing girl called Sami, who has got a bit of a dark past, should we say? And it's only over the course of the film that we find out just how dark that past is. Yes, this film is. It's, as I say, it's a lot more subtle than a lot of Mikkei's films of the period, but it still has those shocking moments as we see limbs amputated by cheese wire, as well as a sequence involving a man in a sack, which I think, uh, if you're eating, probably best not, probably best pause in the movie for. So this was the movie that we met over, I guess. It was, um, yes. We're back on the mad, bad and dangerous to know cult list the the long lamented and replaced with 15 other podcasts that you now do it's um, yeah it was, it's it's, and there's probably not been a film i've spoken about or written about more than this um i maintain it's not a horror movie um so i, I a lot of but a lot of people think it is i think it's a it's a dark psychological thriller um, that starts off almost like a comedy, <laughs> um, although a pretty twisted one. The more you think about it, the worse it is. Um, the novel's really good. Rai Murakami's novel, it's a little bit different, but broadly, in, 
if you a Takashi Mikey adaptation, this is absolutely really reined in. Um, one could even argue it's a little boring in the first sort of first act and a half. Um, and then that sack thing happens, and <laughs> although spoiled in the spoiled in the um, in the trailer, unfortunately, but this was absolutely like you say. There was this, there was Ring, there was Battle Royale. And these were the films that Tartan presented to us. These are the films that got reviewed in the magazines. These are the films which which reawakened certainly Japanese, let's call it cult cinema mm. in the West. Um, it reawakened in me as well. I, I was already into uh, Asian cinema, but I'd kind of gone away. And then these movies reawakened that interest for me. Is it a film that I'd necessarily watch over and over? Probably not, but it's just really important and therefore has to be on this list from one of us. We're now on pick 12, which is Police Story from 1985. Another standout title, uh, especially for martial arts cinema and also for Jackie Chan. Um, here who plays a, the framed police officer um, who is set out to clear his name. This film, I think, is so influential, not only because it introduced a lot of people in the West to Jackie Chan and more, I think, more keenly his his desire to constantly put himself in ever-increasing amounts of danger. When it comes to, obviously, Jackie Chan's stunt work, I mean, this is really sort of head and shoulders above so many of his other films. He just goes all out in this film. He's thrown himself off banisters, he's engaged in car chases, and there's so many sequences you can see that have been borrowed for other films in the West. I mean, there's an opening shot in the seat in the, uh, the shot in the opening where the, they're having a car chase for this village and they're sort of smashing for the buildings. And when you look at Bad Boy 2, it's like, oh, that looks very familiar. And it says finale, which also featured a very similar sequence. And I mean, this kicked off the uh, super cop series. Uh, I think it's arguably the best of the series. I mean, Supercop 3 um, is also pretty cool as well, um, as is the like, first strike. So, but I think time and time again, if I'm asked to like, think, which is my best sort of Jack Chan movie, I think Police Story time and time again is, is sort of the one I keep uh, coming back to. And it's it's just uh, an absolutely jaw-dropping film. Just like is as impressive for its martial arts work as it is for its stunt work, unquestionably. I used to have a real problem with Jackie Chan. Um the modern Jackie Chan is a is not necessarily a nice fella and I hadn't really watched many of his movies and then someone nagged me to death <laughs> and got me. me to watch no it wasn't you it was, before, <laughs> it was, it was pre-Elwood um but they, they nagged me to death oh Jackie Chan Jackie, you must watch Police Story and I watched Police Story and I was utterly blown away um it's the stump work the energy Chan's charisma they all add up to just an amazing I mean it's just a fun movie but then when you add to the fact he's doing all these bloody stunts <laughs> and uh, it's just just an incredible energy about it all this plus you get Maggie Chung and Bridget Lin I mean it's it, it, it's 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 uh, it, it was originally on my list as well but I, I, I would have had it higher, frankly, because I think it's 
it's um we talked about the tentpole of of anime i think this is a tentpole of hong kong cinema and certainly jackie chan's finest moment Pulling just short of uh, the top 10, though, at number 11 is Satoshi Kon's Paprika from 2006. This one was like a real key inspiration for Inception, as uh, basically we have this this uh, fabric called uh, Paprika, who's able to access people's dreams. And basically, uh, she's when the uh, machine which allows uh, people to enter patients' dreams is stolen, uh, she sits out on this very surreal quest uh, with a with a, a detective to try and figure out who uh, told it, and it's a world that gets ever more sort of bizarre and surreal as it goes on. But this is just absolutely stunning anime. Uh, the animation is is fantastic. The soundtrack alone is so good that I have it on my Spotify that I occasionally like tap into it when I need something a little upbeat. But Satoshi Kon, a director who was taken to us way too soon, unfortunately passed away from cancer, uh, but leaving his wake, probably one of the most perfect filmographies, I would uh, say. Time and time again, we saw this obsession with sort of dreams and surreal worlds. We saw it in Perfect Blue, we saw it in Paranoia Agent, and certainly the film he was working on prior to his uh, death was uh, titled Dreaming Machine so it really sort of uh, emphasised where he was going with that one but I think you know one of those towns that I think we lost way too soon so Shashi Khan is just, is just a really wonderful director and certainly one of my favourites especially with anime and Paprika was one of those films I think when I saw it I just straight off I was like just wanted to watch it again um, as soon as those character I just went to just dive back into this movie again and it's it holds up to repeat viewings, which is always nice to see as well. And sometimes when we get these sort of flashy movies they just sort of fall apart when you watch them again, but Paprika just time and time again is just a really wonderful experience. So it's not my favourite con movie. It's a fantastic novel as well. So it's it's uh, it's based on a novel by um let's have a look. Yasutaka Tsutsui. Um, I've, I mangled that. Um, but yeah, it's a really, it's a visual treat. And absolutely, if you've watched Inception, go back and find, watch this and see where Christopher Nolan got some of his ideas from. Um, couldn't recommend it more, mate. Cool. Now we're obviously into the top ten. So these are like the big, the key sort of titles of my old film watching interest. And kicking things off and is uh, from 2002. It's Infernal Affairs, uh, directed by Alan Mack and Andrew Lowe. This film was uh, obviously most noteworthy for being remade as The Departed, the film which won Scorsese's Oscar. This is the first part of a trilogy, uh, but for myself, the first film is the one that sort of stands out the most. Number two being the prequel, and three being sort of like the finale to wrap everything up. But just on its own, uh, Infernal Affairs is just a really fantastic film as we obviously have the have a young police officer being sent under sent to act as a mole with the uh, local triads uh, at the same time the triads have sent their own uh, mole in to infiltrate the police force and this when I said when we talk about like star cast I think this film is just is the sound in the cast that they have today so I mean, we've got Andy Lowe we've got Tony Lung Anthony Wong Eric Tusang Kelly Chan this isn't a bad person in this whole cast, and 
I feel for myself it's far superior than The Departed. I think the plotting in this film is a lot tighter, the characterizations are a lot more sort of intense and it doesn't sort of clog up the works by having unnecessary characters and certainly the chemistry when we see this sort of we see Angelo and Tony Long finally face off is just in that finale sort of sequence is just really sort of fantastic. Anthony Wong um uh, here playing a good guy for a change and for his uh you know, finally getting to play the good guy, and what does he get for it? Well, he gets thrown off a roof, so that that worked out well for him. But I mean, we've talked already about ourselves. You know, we connect him through films and how you know we've met through my previous podcast, my Bad and Darren Strange Showcase, and I may put that archive episode up on on the uh, on the blog just so people can check it out if they want to. And this we're through Infernal Affairs. I mean, this is how I met my other co-host Kim over on uh, Game Warp and Movies and Tea, and it was through this. Um, Herkman on us discussing this film and SPL that you know that friendship started. So I owe a lot to Agent Cinema. I made some my uh, some some great connections and met some awesome co-hosts through Agent Cinema. And Infernal Affairs is one of those movies that sort of came out big, big sort of hype, and it's one of those films that uh, actually lives up to its hype. It's a fantastic, iconic, brilliantly plotted movie that just to me it kind of sums up sort of a it's almost the end of that golden era of hong kong cinema um like you say the cast is amazing i mean you've you've named them all already really haven't you (laughs) but uh it's all right i mean i'm gonna add to that it's got chapman toe in it um who's always good value for money um it's got um little brief glimpses of um sean yu and our our old friends pervy edison chen um who will who would go on to star in the prequel but it's all there already in the in in this film the final well not well the 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 gun the gun standoff at the top of the um of the building is iconic um you could, there's even two different endings. You can watch the real ending or the Chinese ending when different different people win. Um, although that does kind of mess up the third film. If you've only ever watched the Chinese ending, you must wonder what's going on. But it's just got a fantastic cast, a fantastic idea, a fantastic plot. I'm a big fan of The Departed. I know a lot of people think it's a it's sort of the Scorsese, it's a Scorsese sort of pity Oscar. Um, but I kind of enjoy it. But this is much tighter. Um, the sequels were worth it. Both both sequels are fine, but this film, Head and Shoulders, and it's yeah, it, it's to me, it's it, it's just like a it's like a gold standard for sort of Hong Kong police, modern police action films. The next one at number nine may come as a little bit of a surprise to uh, regular listeners to the show, and that's 1954's Gojira by Ishiro Honda. Yes, um, I have put a Godzilla movie at number nine. I know that a lot of people would have expected this to be my number one, but it's it's not. It's, I mean, it's uh, unquestionably a masterpiece, and the film which obviously gave us the giant radioactive lizard who's gone on to have an illustrious career, you know, as the king of kaiju monsters. He's got his own star on the Hollywood Boulevard, and the honour of being asked to direct a Godzilla movie holds the same honour to Japanese directors that uh, being asked to direct a Bond movie does to uh, British directors. And, I mean, when we talk about, if I had, like, my Mount Rushmore of sort of cult 
essential directors, then Ishiro Honda would be on there, right up between Todd Browning and Abel Ferreira for myself. And the film itself is a re- unlike the other ones, which are sort of like giant chop socky movies, is giant monsters uh, battling each other and stomping on Tokyo. It's a very sort of sober monster movie as the this mythical sort of creature, Gojira, turns up and basically starts going on a little bit of a rampage, should we say. And the film is still peppered with so many like sober moments. We see shots of field hospitals. We've got that now iconic shot of the mother hugging her children as like debris rains down upon us. It's like, don't worry, we'll see your father soon. And it's so different than the other films in which followed in its wake. But at the same time, it's just such a masterpiece and it it sort of stands on its own um, and you can understand why it's, it's just this legendary film that it is, it's not just this hokey giant monster movie, it's just really intelligent filmmaking absolutely stunning camera work I mean, Pondo he would obviously go on to direct many of like the key movies in the total back catalogue, he would direct like Rodan and Mothra um, including like obviously more sort of like one-off sort of creation, such as like Vartan. His work in this film is so essential to set up everything that followed, and I think without it, we wouldn't have obviously the legacy of uh, Godzilla that we do now. Yeah, everything you just said and more. Obviously, you're the kaiju guy, but <laughs> this this film is transcendent of that. It's a really well-made science fiction movie. And there aren't a lot of proper science fiction movies in Asian cinema. It's not a genre that they they do a lot of because of budgets and things like that. So, yes, if your knowledge of Godzilla is, is the more campy side of things, this will come as a shock. It's um it's a very sober movie it's it's got a lot to say about the the, the 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 nuclear fear and the nuclear peril that japan obviously feels stronger than anybody um and it just looks stunning in black and white it doesn't look like it, it doesn't always look like model work or people in suits there's a palpable fear um the more recent shin godzilla tried to tap into that and still couldn't do it it's it's a it's a unique experience and, and yeah, it's just a fantastic film. Cool. Um, right. Uh, number eight is uh, Tosh Gun again with Perfect Blue from 1997. Um, a surprisingly, I think at the time of, uh, of the period, I think sort of anime on itself was kind of sort of waning in, in interest, but I think Perfect Blue uh, served to revive some of that interest. And I think it's just an absolutely stunning film and, it's only one which announced Con as being this talent to watch. Um, the film itself, it follows this pop singer called Mima, who decides that she's going to retire and uh, become an actress. And at the same time, a website appears called Mima's Room, which details her life as if she had continued as a pop star. And it goes down into this nightmare-ish world where she's not sure what's real and what's uh what's fake, and it would prove a key influence on Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. Uh, there's so many shots that he would include in that film, which mirror up with Perfect Blue, and then he also borrowed uh, shots as well for um, Reckon for a Dream. And This is just a really interesting psychological thriller. I think it showed that anime could be more than, you know, just 
giant bosom ultra vixens and huge robots and demons and schoolgirls and all these things that we associate as being anime and it showed that you could tell really intelligent filmmaking so really intelligent stories and just uh, really interesting ideas just through the medium so yeah I mean Perfect Blue is again it's just one of the, one of my favourites of uh, the Sushikom filmography and uh, I said that's why I've ranked it at number 8 and of course we've spoken about this movie at yeah. length on, on a previous episode however I this is an exceptional film, and the fact it is an anime is is irrelevant. This would have been, if it had been done properly, would have been a fantastic live-action film. So we'll pretend the live-action one doesn't exist, right? <laughs> um, the, the story... I mean, this film's getting on for 30 years old. Getting up there. But it's as relevant now as it was then with what it's talking about celebrity and stalking and uh, loss of identity because of celebrity. Um, it's, it's, it's properly adult. There are some things in it, which I find a little distasteful. Um, there's a little bit of, well, a bit of rapiness and a bit of fan service going on. Let's be honest about you. Uh, it's um, the, 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 the guy who we may think is the bad guy, the animation is a bit too literal in in, in what it's trying to visualise. But it's a, just a fantastic film. And you can watch this. And it, it this isn't watching Frozen. This is watching a grown-up adult film. It just so happens that the actors and actresses in it are drawn and not living and breathing. It's a brilliant movie. At number seven, we have a film which I absolutely adored, Stephen Din, and uh, that's John Woo's Hard Boiled. Um, Hard Boiled is, whenever I talk about John Woo's uh, sort of films, I always recommend that people uh, check out the films in this order and go watch A Better Tomorrow, then The Killer, and then watch Hard Boiled. And Stephen, I mean, you chose to just skip right to the end and watch Hard Boiled for some reason. Well, you know. If you tell me to do something, I'll do the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, as we when we like look at Scorsese and his working relationship with Robert De Niro, John Woo and Chow Yun Fat is just another genius partnership. And here, I think both are working, just firing on all cylinders. As um, Chow Yun Fat plays the Detective Tequila, who is the sort of detective who shoots first and asks questions later, going up against the evil crime boss played by Anthony Wong. Um, this film is just an absolute bullet ballet of gun fu. It's so stunning and features all the trademarks that you want from John Woo movie, including a 40-minute showdown in a in a hospital, which is being uh, used as a secret gun storage for the uh, local crime boss and. This is a sequence which has no repetition and just no sort of breaks at all. It just continuous uh, firefighting. It's the inventiveness and just the style that uh, John Wood brings to this film is just absolutely astounding. And features in its uh, high point, Detective uh, Killer running through a burning hallway, carrying a baby, caught on fire, only to have his flames put out. Uh, by the baby wing on his leg. And he says, thanks, kid, your piss put out my flames. And if that doesn't make you want to see this film, I don't know what does. 
So, yeah, you can go back to our previous episodes <laughs> and see what I think of this. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate the art. And you're absolutely, in terms of set pieces and sort of those John Woo uh, ticks, <laughs> shall we say, yeah. they're all here in spades. You've got Chow Yun-Fat, Anthony Lung, who are both superstars. So on one level, it's a fantastic film. Unfortunately for me, the story was such a bag of nonsense and so easy to unpick <laughs> and left me with so many questions from minute one through to minute 90 or however long it is just stopped me really enjoying it but I absolutely understand the art I understand what a genre fan will get out of this I totally get why people think it's so great I just don't think it is at number six we have our first entry from Shiro Ghibli and it's Heio Miyazaki's 1997 film Princess Mononoke this is a really fun fantasy movie and one of the first movies that was picked up for distribution through Disney at the same time now giving that legendary story of Miyazaki sending a samurai sword to the Disney offices saying no cuts after the treatment that Valley um, of the Wind had received, received uh, being hacked to bits by New World Pictures the film itself as I said did well funded by Disney I don't think they knew what they were getting as this is a film fantasy movie where it taps into that Murasaki popular theme of nature versus industry as we have the forest spirits teaming up to battle Lady Boshi, who's leading the, uh, the forces of industry and the two coming into into a conflict. At the same time, you have the young warrior uh, Ashika, um, who is basically trying to cure his cursed hand, which he, it gets cursed during the opening attack by a demon boar god, a sequence which took over a year to animate. And it's just so stunning to think that this isn't CGI, this is hand-drawn animation. And you, if people ever question why Miyazaki is as revered as he is as a director, especially of animation, and the fact that they can like bul- like lessen his reputation by calling him the Disney of the East, because he's certainly not. He's an absolute master director, especially of animation. And... Princess Mononoke is just an absolute standout title of the Ghibli uh, back catalogue. I'm surprised you chose this one, but then at the same time, I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything you said plus more. It, it's not my favourite Ghibli film. Um, it's probably not even in my top five. Okay. Um, I've got one in my 25, um, which isn't this. Um, and it's not Spirited Away, um, it's not Kiki's Delivery Service, and um, and it's not Only Yesterday, which are my other other favourites. Um, but this this would be in my yeah this okay this might be my top five, you believe? I mean it's it's a stunning piece of work, but so are they all. Um, and again, I suspect it was a bit like choosing your favourite child, but. Uh, you have no idea how close I came to put Kiki's Livery Service on. <laughs> Kiki's Livery Service is just an enchantingly wonderful movie. Um, it's actually one of those few Ghibli movies where I prefer the dub to the subtitle version. And I think it's just mainly because the cat's a little more fun and sarcastic in the dub version than he is in the subtitle version. And Kirsten Dunst providing the voice of Kiki is just really great as well. It sort of uh, That was a great thing about Disney picking them up is the fact they got these A's, these... Uh, 
these A grade yeah. actors to obviously do the voice acting. Absolutely, got A list. They got they do have A list dubs. I mean, you, you can't go wrong with these movies. Um, and actually, interestingly, these are Japanese films, which I don't mind listening to a dub. Strangely, I don't know why. Um, I I mean, I guess Spirited Away is the one which really branched out and crossed over to the mainstream more. But I understand absolutely why you like this one. And, and and you're absolutely right. It's a lot darker than maybe what they thought they were getting. <laughs> right. So now into our top five. And uh, number five is an entry from Park Chan-wook's Vengeance Trilogy. And I'm going to sort of rock the boat here by saying that my favourite of the Vengeance Trilogy is Lady Vengeance, also known as Sympathy for Lady Vengeance from 2005. Um, here we see Lee Guam Ja, who is imprisoned for the murder of a six-year-old boy. And over the course of the 13 years, she forms all kinds of contacts with her fellow inmates who teach her various skills or give her give her abilities uh, that enable her to extract her revenge on the people who led for her to be falsely imprisoned. Um, Lady Vengeance, I think, while a lot of people will obviously go towards Oh Boy and even fewer still will mention the rather still wonderful uh, Mr. Vengeance. There was something about Lady Vengeance that just really stood out for me, be it Blood on Snow, the really sort of iconic makeup and look uh, that uh, that we see here for uh, for the our main heroine of sorts and or it could just obviously be the finale the final revenge sequence uh where we have this group of parents who are just sitting in a hallway like they're lined up for like a parents evening but they've all got different weapons and how they choose to extract revenge on the final guy is just probably one of the most chilling moments of revenge cinema but it's peppered at the same time with moments of black humor um such as one of the parents charging at this guy with an axe, only for his wife to stop him and say, no, you can't kill him. There's other people behind us waiting. <laughs> but no, Super for Lady Avengers, I just love the fact that we have this character who, by doing good deeds, in turn uh, gains the respect and the sort of skill sets of her fellow sort of inmates, so one, who, one who's part of a husband and wife bank robbing team, sets her up so she can get a weapon of choice, which is this really elaborate gun, and others sort of like teach her different sort of skills that she can use on the outside world. And right from the opening, uh, where she rejects eating tofu, which is the symbolizing of cleansing, a cleansed soul, the film itself sets, sets her off as like this really sort of driven person. And we see her, how she like enters as this like really sort of nice and naive woman and she comes out this really sort of like cold and calculating killer. I think is it's just a really fascinating movie and I think it's just like the perfect final finale for uh, Park Chan-wook's Vengeance trilogy and I think Vengeance has never looked as beautiful as it does in this, these films. So, spoilers for my list, I pick another one of the Vengeance trilogy. <laughs> Ooh, which one? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to spoil it that much. I half love Lady Vengeance. I, the first half of the movie, the colourful half, the, <laughs> even though there's a child murder that, that, that's the root of it, there's, there's something about um, Park Chan-wook's use of colour, use of imagery, use of humour, as you say, um, 
it's it's almost like a heist, isn't it? Getting the gang together and 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 doing it all, and and it's absolutely delightful. And then the film goes somewhere, as you've already said, really freaking dark. And although there are elements of humour in it, the colour of the movie drains out. And so I actually find it really hard to watch. I think, is there not a version where it starts in colour and ends in black and white? Is that not how it was originally going to be done? But I mean, the the, the palette he uses anyway, it, it, it darkens. And I feel guilty about enjoying the first half of the movie okay. because the second half is so grim. And that's the problem I have with the film is that I, I, I adore the first half and then feel awful with myself because of what happens in the second half. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to explain. I have a really strange relationship with the movie. I mean, I, you could put on the first 40 minutes and I'll be happy as a sandboy. Um, but then it goes somewhere too dark for me to contemplate. Next up on the list, we have the highest rated Godzilla movie of my listener. Number four is 1968's Destroy All Monsters, a film which also marked our very first Kaiju Christmas. Uh, Destroy All Monsters, or also known as Attack of the Marching Monsters, is the ninth entry in the Godzilla series, and at the time was actually designed to be the final Godzilla movie, and at that point, uh, Boss at Toa were ready just to put the whole series into mothballs and, you know, be done with it. But the success of this film made it not only one of the most popular films of the Shower series, but also meant that the film has gone on for some 19-plus movies since. The film itself, it's, uh, you know, it taps into all the usual sort of trends of the period. So we've got space travel and alien invasion, and we also have basically every monster that belonged to the Toho catalogue, bar their version of King Kong, uh, being brought out for this giant monster smackdown uh, with the Absolute sort of standouts goes to the moment of all time being the six versus six monsters teaming up to take on King Ghidorah for the finale. This film, if you're a fan of like kaiju movies, will be just, you know, an absolute fanboy dream. As not only do we get Godzilla, we get like such classics such as Mothra, we get King Ghidorah, we get Angulus, we get Rodan, and we get even like one shot characters like Spigra and uh, Baragon and Manda. And it really just it gave so much to the franchise in the fact that we got given Monsterland, where all the monsters in the world have now been rounded up and they're stored in this one island. And it just made sadness so much to the Sagres. It now meant that we were never wondering where these monsters are, because it's not like a pair of keys. It's not, a giant monster is not something you can just misplace. So the fact that they're all on this, this one island, uh, sort of time and time again, just was a really nice sort of addition to the series. And I think uh, certainly when I talk about like recommending a Godzilla movie to someone who's never seen one before, then I always recommend Destroy Monsters as being like the entry point because it's got so many fun elements. It's giant monsters destroying major cities around the world, having giant smackdowns with each other. And uh, there's just a lot of fun there. And it's got uh, a really cool cast as well. And would be one of the final films for the main Godzilla uh, sort of forefathers to all work on together and here we just have like a lot of people just working really at the height of their powers like including Ishiro Honda we've also got uh, a wonderful score by uh, Makira Ikafumi 
um, as well. But, you know, Destroy Monsters is just one of those movies I just return to time and time again. And uh, certainly that's why it is where it is on, on my list. It probably would be higher if uh, the films, which obviously preceded, didn't just sort of edge it out. So this didn't surprise me. I thought this was going to be your number one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I I love this film as well. It's like a greatest hits movie, isn't it? Of yeah, of of Godzilla movies after the first one. So if you're if you're able to park your your brain somewhere else and not worry too much about these rubber suited men and also, don't worry too much about not knowing who all these characters are, all these all these monsters are, which obviously you've you have religious fervour over Elwood. <laughs> but, but for but for the rest of us, oh, that's a cool one. That's not such a cool. <laughs> but but it's 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 brilliant. It's got the concept of Monster Island, which I think is just fantastic, and I wish people did more with. But I do believe the the next bunch of Western remakes are going to um, have a look at that, and hopefully they do something good with it. Um, but it's just fun and it's fun. It's not campy though. It's not so some of the Godzilla movies after this get campier and campier or even before this, but this is just, this is just fun. This is what filmmaking can be. Yeah. So if you can, if you can not worry about, Oh, it's just men in rubber suits and little models and things like that. And you can just go with the flow there isn't a more entertaining Godzilla movie than this one. Oh, is there? <laughs> Stay tuned for future editions of the Kaiju Christmas, and we'll see if we can challenge that opinion of yours, Stephen. So. Um, challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> number three is a film which I describe as being the Korean version of Saving Private Ryan, but better. And uh, that is Brotherhood, also known as uh, Taegak-gi, the War from 2004. This is a film which I showed to my father, and he thought was just he thought was just absolutely astounding. I said to him, "You know, this this is the best way I can try it. It's like you know, it's the Korean Seven Pride Ryan." And he was like, "No, this is just so much better." And I think I stand by that opinion. I really, when I talk about like some of my, one of my favorite films of all times, I think Brotherhood is just head and shoulders uh, above so many so many other films, and we. The film itself is set during the Korean War, which is probably one of the least tapped into areas of history when it comes to film uh, filmmaking. And we have these two brothers, and the older brother is determined to get his younger brother out of the army. So he engages in all these sort of suicide missions and tries to get himself promoted to earn a Medal of Honor, which he believes will enable his brother to be discharged from the from the army and uh, in turn. You know, save him from being killed on the battlefield. And the film itself, it just follows this really emotional journey. We see, obviously, the older brother being sort of becoming more drawn and and darkened by the things that he's forced to see around him. And it just climaxes on this uh, this absolutely astounding final battle sequence. And, I mean, it really shows the Korean awful it is. I mean, this is a real blood and snot conflict, and it's perfectly captured by the finale, which is probably what just a real heartbreaking sort of sequence and a real sort of like heroic end, uh, all in one sort of wonderful sequence. And the director is himself, uh, Kang Ji Gu, 
at the time he sort of like really sort of pushed in this wave of Korean movies that came out and he was certainly noteworthy for the fact that he was playing with director playing with the same sort of budgets that western directors were getting to play around with but certainly when you look at this film it's all on the screen it's just uh, absolutely stunning portrayal of war and it's just both like moving and just incredible it's not a boy's own adventure sort of movie it's just as i said it's a real sort of horrors of war uh film and very much sort of taps into the same sort of vein of like the likes of platoon and uh seven private ryan and and certainly if you uh like your your war movies like that then i think this is one definitely worth checking out i don't really like war movies but (laughs) this is a really good one um and being a korean movie it's also got the whole family based emotional depth to it as well that you can connect with the characters so yeah wouldn't have wouldn't have even touched my top 100 but a really good film and locally in south korea a, a really popular film as well so um yeah i'll i'll i'll, I'll I'll accept this <laughs> entry into the list. <laughs> it's only one that I think we are going to discuss uh, discuss it deeper in more detail on a future episode. As uh, same when we were like can find a list of films to discuss on the show, that I think Bravo was definitely in there. So unquestionably, it's in uh, in my top five. And and uh, yeah, if it wasn't for the two the two before it, um, I would certainly would have would have put it higher. So. Um, but at number two, we have the template, you know, the high point, the high watermark uh, for anime, the anime which all anime are still marked against, and that is 1988's Akira uh, by Kachiro Otomo. This film came out with a tagline, Neo Tokyo is about to explode. This film really encapsulates all that is wonderful about old school anime and the film itself is based on the what, eight phone-sized volumes of uh, of manga. Um, the film itself it taps into a real sort of cyberpunk, post-apocalyptic Neo Tokyo as a member of a biker gang is captured by the military and subjected to experiments which tap into his inner psychic abilities only for him to then obviously go rogue um and put him up against his former best friend as the two battle uh over the battle for the fate of uh neo tokyo the film itself is still absolutely stunning i mean the opening bike chase through the streets of neo tokyo is still an absolutely astounding sequence and the fact there's it's first of all it's shot at night which is one of the most difficult things to animate and there's about 47 shades of grey mixed into this uh, sequence but seeing how the light effects move, how bikes move how the action flows how these characters are sort of introduced and developed, it's just absolutely astounding and while they constantly threaten to make a live action (laughs) remake of this film um, it's the anime is just a class of its own. It is just an absolute temple, not only of just Asian cinema, but just cinema on a whole. This is really shows you the power of what animated films can do. And uh, it's still, as I said, it's still an anime which I measure all other anime against. So we've never really talked about Akira, have we? <laughs> it's surprising, really. <laughs> it's it's never come up. 
because I've lived with Akira for 30 years. I remember when it came over. Um, I had friends who used it along with um, films like Top Gun to show off their surround sound and their, and their widescreen TVs. I had friends who were fans of the manga. So I think this was made before the manga was complete. Um, I own at least three different versions of this movie in various formats and special editions. But I don't get it. And okay. I really want us to talk about this film <laughs> in a future episode so you can expand or I can watch it with a different eye because I, I mean, it's not that I don't like cyberpunk. It's not that the elements of the film aren't things that I would normally enjoy. There's just something about it I don't connect with and I don't know what it is. And so we need to talk. We need to talk about Akira. <laughs> that needs to be in a in a future episode fairly soon. So we're now at number one. What has really claimed the top spot on my list? And I think if you listen to our previous episode, you would know already what that film is. And at number one for myself is Battle Royale. Battle Royale is, as we mentioned before, it's not only the film which ushered in. The, the new uh, new wave of interest in Asian cinema. Um, it's just an absolutely perfect movie from start to start. It's uh, absolutely astounding concept. This idea of a class of students being sent to this island to battle to the death um, as part of a government reform act that has been set up to not only revitalize the Japanese economy but also show the lengths that they're willing to do, go to combat the threat of these of children who are obviously gone rogue the film itself uh, is not only directed by Kichiv Fukusaru portrait if I've mispronounced that but uh, also features a very memorable appearance by Takashi Beat Takano um, I mean we I mean we talked about this with Emily on on episode 25 and it's I guess it's one of those films that it's we mentioned already, I mean, on that episode that it's a subtitle movie that's never received a dub, yet there are people who say they would never watch subtitle movies that will have watched Battle Royale. It's a really interesting take on the most dangerous game. The soundtrack is just fantastic. It's populated with very popular classics, so if you've ever seen a commercial with classical music, you'll probably find it in this movie's soundtrack. And at the same time, we have a group of 40 students here but every character seems to have their little moment to sort of shine, be defined, and not just be fodder for the slaughter. And it's just an astounding piece of filmmaking. It was given a very problematic sequel, should we say, that I liked, um, bar its fed act. Uh, but by the way, just, I don't know how many times I watched this movie, I just time and time again, it just feels as fills me with the same sort of excitement and interest that it did the first time and as soon as I hear the opening orchestral bars that introduction I just know, you know, it's Battle Royale time. <laughs> I'm just gonna be hooked from like start to finish of this film. Uh, but yeah, myself, Battle Royale is my number one pick. So 
you just need to go back and listen to our previous episode where me, Elwood and Emily talk about it at great length. Um, I'm not going to argue with you. There's, um, there's maybe six films on your list that were going to be on my list. So I'm very lucky following you. I've been able to sneak six other films on <laughs> and take them off. Um, but Battle Royale would have been my top movie as well. Um, it's it's a gateway movie. It's the movie that I can show people who don't like Japanese or Asian or even subtitled films. Um, it's ridiculous but thought provoking. Um, there's all sorts of different characters in there. Again, we, you know, we again we talked at great length in the previous episode about who our favourites were and the stories that we're most interested in. The novel it's based on is great. Um, the the, the the general idea is just a bit of disturbing, but but a huge amount of fun. Um, I have problems with it. I have huge problems about the story and how it doesn't quite hang together for me. But that doesn't stop it being one of the most entertaining bits of cinema I've ever seen. So it would have been my number one as well. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, mate. So there you have it. So that's the first half of our um our top 50 list. You've had my 25. On the next episode, Stephen will be showing his 25. And uh, obviously, let us know any films that you feel that uh, we should have included on our list. Let's uh, hear what would have made your own list. And uh, if anything, it will obviously give us new films to check out and uh, to hopefully spark some interesting discussion in the uh, comment section. Until uh, next time, though, you can obviously follow us on Twitter. We are on Facebook as well. Uh, you can check out the whole archive on asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com as, as well as through thatmomentin.com. You know, wherever you happen to listen to us, leave us a rating, leave us some comments. It really helps raise the show's profile and uh, helps more people obviously discover the show. And so we thank everyone for obviously listening and uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this first part of our Top 50 countdown. And uh, next time we'll be back with Stephen's List. But um, until next time, thank you always so to my co-host, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, we'll be back next time, finding what made Stephen's top 25. Hey! 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 きのうのあの子は忘れて踊り続けていたい夜なのさ月が砕け散っても星が燃えて落ちても踊り続けていたい夜なのさ胸に刺さった恋の刃が燃える想いを狂わすのさ昨日の恋は忘れて昨日のあの子は忘れて踊り続けていたい夜なのさ